Hey everybody, my name's Graham Brown. I'm from Pitch Media Asia and welcome to my world of podcasting. Now, you may have heard my voice from podcasts that I host, such as Asia Tech Podcast, Pitch Deck Asia, and The Podcast Show. I also do work for clients. I want to share some of those journeys with you today. The soundscapes that we create that can be created by telling stories through audio. We've traveled across Asia and collected stories on airplanes, at night markets, in offices, conferences, in our own studio here in Singapore. I want to share with the, those adventures with you today because I believe everybody has an interesting, if not amazing, story to tell. My job as a podcast host is to help tell that story. So sit back and relax, enjoy the next 30 to 40 minutes of sound as we take you on a journey into the world of podcasting. And we open up the possibilities of what you can do when you tell a story through a podcast. In the first section called Soundscapes, I want to share with you how our Pitch Media Asia team captured the raw emotion and feeling of a story through the ambience of the place in which it was recorded. And the following recordings took place in very dynamic environments from noisy offices to night markets to even outside in the rain. Plus, stick around for the end of this section because you'll hear me describing what it is like to eat a scorpion. one of these guys took us on a tour. It was called the Banda Aceh Tsunami Tour. Wow. And it was Boy. basically, you would go to a village to look at where the giant electric tanker had washed in one right. kilometer inshore. Mm. Um, that was the, the place where he said, okay, this is where like three layers of bodies were buried. And then there was the beach. We were having coconut drink there. And he said, okay, this is where a lot of bodies washed up on the shore. And I was like, this is macabre, you know? Yeah. But they had a very interesting term. They said, every, a lot of people I met, they said this. They said, tsunami membawa berkat, which means tsunami brought us luck. Okay, so this is Graham here, and... Uh well, if you caught the noise in the background, you're probably realizing that this isn't our usual place of recording in our studio in Singapore. We're actually on a plane. And uh, we're on a plane on row 26 heading from Singapore to DMK Bangkok Airport. And the reason we're doing this for Asia Tech Podcast is we are on tour. So we're heading to Bangkok for two nights to get a, a sample of the best sounds and stories of Bangkok. Right, so we're here in Bangkok, sitting out on a lovely warm evening outside of Starbucks, getting a sample for the vibe that is Bangkok and the people that make up this amazing city. It's Graham Brown here. I'm sitting with... I'm going to try your name, so forgive me if I get the pronunciation wrong, but I practiced it. Um, Tamwa Jampapa. Did I get that right? Right. How do, what marks do I get out of 10? 99%. 99%. <laughs> um, I've, we've had a 
a really good sort of afternoon just hanging out and finding yeah. out about yourself yes. and you've been really gracious taking us around the bits of Bangkok we've had some amazing food yes um, we want to find out a little bit more about you because if you're listening to this in flight here's something um is actually an air asia pilot yeah so we're going to talk about that in a minute you're not only a pilot you're a singer uh-huh. a model maybe <laughs> a very humble model um a few other talents as well engineer yes um i'm a cynical pilot from uh, asia x yeah. thai at asia x and where do you fly because when we spoke I think on, at the weekend you were flying yeah. Bangkok to Narita, Narita Japan, Japan yeah. yeah. Yes. And then coming back, yeah. We um, were speaking like, hey, let's meet up in Bangkok, and uh-huh. I said, yeah, I'm flying to uh, Narita tonight. And the cool thing was, you were flying the plane. Yes. <laughs> you weren't just a passenger; you were actually the pilot. That's pretty cool. Hey, good morning, folks. This is Graham Brown. We are in the middle of a rice field in Bali, in Ubud, on the hunt to find the elusive digital nomads, the lifestyle entrepreneurs, the location-independent entrepreneurs, whatever they call themselves, the hustlers who are living the dream or trying to live the dream on this beautiful island from different parts of the world they come for different reasons. So it's now seven in the morning, sunrise in Bali, just over the volcano there. And we're enjoying a coffee with uh, Martin from Germany. Good morning. Good morning to you, Martin. Good morning. Good morning. So that, that, that brings a question. Can you actually do a podcast in Bali without a studio? Wait, we just answered that. We are doing one are in too. Bali. Yeah, there you go. Hey guys, this is Kay Bharat from the podcast show powered by Pitch Media Asia. So, uh, Graham and I actually took a trip down to Bali. Uh, we were there on an assignment and we decided to record a podcast show episode there. And what we did is we we were describing how you can record your podcast in Bali. So we were based in uh, Ubud, uh, that's at Ubud. So it's a co-working space uh, which is facing a rice field. If you're not checking it out, go check it out online. It's it's really amazing. It's really like a movie. It's like it's like a movie scene, man. and I'm not even I'm not even kidding you. It's so good. So, for the next thirty to forty minutes, you're going to listen to us how we actually, what are the equipments we brought, how we actually executed our podcast, and our war with the monkeys. Yep. Stay tuned. So this is uh, basically a dash of protein, naturally sourced. <laughs> so some of these guys can fly, some used to crawl. <laughs> right, so we've got like scorpions on a stick, we've got like... You blew the suspense! <laughs> Sorry man, I think the suspense was killing me. Um, I'm only going to eat it if you 
Well, if you try the scorpion, I can tell you how it tastes. Can we, yeah. can we eat a scorpion? I'm like, is that not poisonous? Nah. So it's basically crispy shell on the outside. So and do you want to try one with me? I'm not going to try. You'll have to ask me to skip this one. Alright. <laughs> uh, or maybe like a locust. Yeah. I'm not yeah. sure about the maggots. Now let's are. let's not go to second row. Let's just be on the first row. <laughs> Maybe first that's row. Who, the who, first. Who wants to be a scorpion with me? One hundred sixty. What's the difference between those and those? Oh, the bigger one. Oh, the small one's fine. Yeah. Yeah. Small one. Yeah. Hey. Okay. So we're gonna eat a scorpion. Oh, she's putting sauce on it. Oh, what's she putting on it? Like a. Oh. They're putting pepper on it? Yes. Yeah. Alright, so, uh, scorpion, fried, deep fried. Deep fried. Make sure to include the crunchiness Crunchy. in I'm your gonna, podcast. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to get the crunchiness. I, I want to kind of like pull the, uh, the claw off and then eat it and then uh, record the sound. So this is me eating a scorpion. No, it's not bad. How it's it? I wouldn't say aloe, but yeah. okay. Um, yeah. It tastes a little bit like um, bacon. I hope you enjoyed that soundscape section. Coming up next is a section I called motivations, which hopefully captures the feelings and the stories behind the entrepreneurs and the startup founders. These conversations took place in very dynamic environments from other people's offices to our studio to exhibition hall. So the noise levels vary greatly. Hopefully we still captured the ambience and the feeling of the story within them. Coming up first, I want to introduce you to somebody who needs very little introduction, whose story is quite inspiring. A short clip from our conversation with founder of AirAsia, Tony Fernandez. This is Asia Matters, powered by Asia Tech Podcast. We're on a tour, on a mission to discover who matters and what matters in the Asian startup ecosystem. Today, we're in the beautiful Red Q home of AirAsia, which will give you indication who our special guest is today. So, without much further ado, I'll introduce him, Tony Fernandez. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Graham. Good, morning to, you. Good to be here. Finally. Finally. <laughs> yeah. There's a I, bit of a history here. Yeah. I mean, seven months? Seven months? It's yeah. taken, is it as long as that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember meeting you in a food court. Newton Hawker Center. Newton Who would Hawker have Center. Tony Fernandez. There we go. And his wife in <laughs> Newton Hawker Center on a Friday night. I remember it well. <laughs> in fact, we had the last table and we offered you the last pair of seats. Correct. Very kind of you. And, do you, and maybe one day we'll do business together. I gave birth to my daughter in November 2015, was that the Turkish toddler Alan Kurdi had washed up on the beach. And he looked like he was asleep, but he was dead. And when you're pregnant, you have these huge wave of hormones. Everything is cuddly and furry and nice. And, you know, generally I'm quite grumpy, but, you know, I was, I was like, oh, I want to cuddle that. And, and I saw that and I, I just cried. I cried my eyes out because when you're pregnant, you have a tremendous empathy you're, you're, you're built for that. That's how we perpetuate ourselves as a species, for, for, for small 
acute defenseless things because otherwise we eat our young. And can I say full disclosure as a white CIS male and also for Graham here, we talked about this story. Both of us remember this image. If anyone hasn't seen, there's a tragic picture of this young kid washed up on a beach. Mm. And I remember when my son was born, I couldn't watch the news for about a week. It just all seemed too raw. It was too noisy, too angry. Now, most people kind of pass through that and get absorbed into the process of learning to be a parent for the first time. But you did something else with that energy. Well, then I gave birth to my daughter. It was not an easy birth. It was traumatic. The emergency C-section, the ER thing where they wheel you up with the gurney and you see the lights flash in front of your eyes. Yeah. And then when I'm weak from blood loss, I'm holding my daughter and she's, this tiny little life is asleep in exactly the same position as a toddler. And I, I just lose my shit. I'm, I'm howling my eyes out. It's in the middle of the night and my husband looks at me and he goes, what's wrong? And I'm, I think uh, it takes about half an hour to get out of me, but I was like, the world is fucked up. Pardon my language. What have we done to this little life in our arms that there are other little lives that that will never see another sunrise. They won't have a chance to be held and grow up and grow old. And, and I thought, you know, it's a powerful impulse when you when you have a child. And, and my thought was, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I am going to try to fix this. And I think commerce is is part of what we are trying to do. Well, that was a powerful story told by Karen Teo from Commerce. And I think that is the beauty of podcasting. It can go to the places that other mediums can't. You can go to a conference and talk about your business, but you can't talk about the personal story. Yet it's the personal story that these days people want to connect with. And I often find that people on a podcast want to tell those personal stories as well because that is powerful for communication, it's powerful for marketing, and it's powerful for branding. So that is why podcasting is becoming popular in a world that I believe is increasingly fake. Podcasting is the last bastion of the human connection. So coming up in the next section, more human stories from a wide range of different founders. Founders who are starting out on the journey, founders who are very successful with a couple of exits, one who has sold two businesses worth 25 million. Their stories are all unique, but they share that common human thread. So enjoy. We're back. It's Graham. I'm with Anissa, a very friendly and familiar face. How are you doing? I have been well. Thank yeah. you. I haven't seen you for about a month or so. A month or so. Yeah, you've been busy? Busy raising funds. Yeah. yeah. Are you making progress? <laughs> Every day is getting better and yeah. better. Yeah. So, you know, it is a process and, you know, you just have to go through. You're a very positive person. Are you like this? all the time i do have my moments but yeah. i think it makes more sense to be more positive you know because you attract good things coming your way and you'll never know like today is going to be one of the best days of my life could be could be <laughs> just it's being just here started right yes, so that's right. hey you've got a really interesting backstory as well so for those that don't know you mm -hmm. you have this rather crazy goal of is it a million marriages creating one million marriages worldwide worldwide 
how far are you along that path? We have, um, to date, yeah. more than a thousand couples who have gotten married as a result of our introduction. Yeah. So it has emboldened my vision, you know, to get to that one million mark. Do you get invited to any of these weddings? Absolutely. Really? That Absolutely. must be an expensive business. <laughs> you need to raise funds to pay for that. <laughs> it's a fulfilling business, I must yeah. say. So the offline business has been doing really, really, really well. Yeah. Um, and so now I'm on the path to uh, building my mobile app, uh, which is called Jumpa. That means yeah. let's meet in the Malay language, yep. or the, the Bahasa language. And um, so this is my new mission. This is my new vision. And uh, I'm on the path to creating and scaling the business. Awesome. With a happy ending for everybody, Right. Yes, Hopefully. absolutely. A million absolutely. of them. So interesting about you is that um, if people can't see you on the um, the video is that you're, you're Singaporean, yeah, you are Muslim, yes. and you are running a matchmaking service for Muslims, right? Which is an interesting concept in itself, isn't mm -hmm. it? Because that doesn't come easily. Yes. Right. I mean, you, when you did the, you came to the studio and shared your longer. That was when I was age 14. My yeah. dad was actually pan uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, so mm. he actually um, subsequently within the year passed on. Oh. And at that point of time, uh, my mom actually ran a F&B business uh, with my dad, right? Um, and we had 20 outlets and 200 employees. So what we so at that point when my dad passed away, my mom had to go into the business and run the entire show. Mm. And she wasn't able to cope with everything. And further that being said, we have to actually focus on making payroll for all these 200 employees as well, right? So what I did is that basically, um, I have to go in and step into the game. So I started at the age of 14 to start my mom, uh, help my mom with managing the business, uh, managing the 20 outlets. Uh, we, we basically, we, we went through what I would say a very down period for, mm. for the next five years working our asses off. And subsequently, what we did is that we grew the business, right? We, we actually were able to, um, how to say, revitalize the business and grow the business. And that is actually how I actually got into um, doing business. We kind of uh, shocked the market. Um, yeah, so you're hustling. Yeah, we are hustling and we got very big customers, including the likes of Rolls Royce. And it was pretty lucrative, you know. Uh, mm. Every time you pick up a phone and make an international call, we get a cut of of the phone bill. Yeah. So uh, great time. Uh, after one year, we were awarded a top partner, generated the highest revenue. They gave us all the bells and whistles. And six months after that, they decided to fire us. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to entrepreneurship. There you go. The hustle is real. The struggle is real. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've always been a bit of a deviant. Right. So um, I grew up. I grew up in school being the class clown, and always at the bottom of the class, grade wise. Right. So uh, naturally, for me, I didn't think that I would do very well in a more structured corporate environment. So um, I think I was twenty one when I graduated from the National University of Singapore. Yeah. Um, I jumped right into entrepreneurship. So you, did you ha ever have quote a proper job? Unquote. In that sense, no. Right, you never yeah. got paid by somebody else to work for another company. No, I don't think anyone would have ever wanted to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you when you graduated, did you know that you wanted to become an entrepreneur off the bat? Um, I always knew that I was not gonna fit into something that's um so structured. Uh, yeah. I didn't know if I was gonna be an entrepreneur or if I could even be a good one. Mm. Um, but uh, I I got slightly inspired when I was 
in 2021, whereby I did a very short one-month internship in a startup. Mm. But uh, yeah, so that was my only job, if anything. Um, that led me to actually become a partner in that company for a while, mm. from an intern to a partner, quite a promotion. But that kind of gave me the confidence to do a lot more things on my own. I read something interesting about you. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, was it about Uber, was it there? No. Is it true that you set up like eight businesses by the time that you left school or something? Yeah, what? that is true. Yes. I, I, I read that and I thought, no, that's got, that can't be right. Yeah. What, Scott, did you just leave school or something? Did you, you no, I was, I, was at, I was at school. It's, it's cool. Like even I, I mean, I wouldn't have even known the word entrepreneurship. Like when I yeah. was, I set up my first business at the age of 11 where it was sort of like I was a necessity entrepreneur. We're going through a drought. I wanted to buy a computer. There was no money around. What am I going to do? So I put all these strawberries in, started selling strawberries beside the road. That went well, built that over three years and became one of the main income earners for our family for a while. And then had another seven businesses when I was at university. Everyone else was getting a job, getting paid $15 an hour. I thought there's got to be a better way. So I set up a landscaping uh, business and, you know, did, did pretty well. In fact, it was so successful that I, I didn't end up going to lectures. So I, I, I pretty much failed a lot of university, but, you know, that's how I sort of got my start. Well, that's okay. great. So you were doing palm oil plantations yeah. at the beginning. Yeah. But now, what kind of drone surveillance do you do? I mean, looking yeah. at Bangkok, yeah. do you, have you flown drones here, this skyline? Actually, I fly more than um, 20,000 uh, hectares in, in terms of Bangkok and in terms of uh, any uh, province other Bangkok. Yeah. So... We can claim that we are the most uh, area uh, deploy of drone in Thailand because yeah. we, we fly. And even in ASEAN, in Indonesia, in, in Malaysia, we, we, all, we can fly uh, as one as we can, but there are the regulations. How have you sort of found yourself in identifying talent? Because a bit of background as well, you worked at Murudi before as well. So you saw a lot of people go through the batches there, you know, with yeah. different sort of levels of success. When people come to you now, A, what, what are you looking for? And B, also, how has that changed? For example, like from the very, you know, day zero of Murudi to where you are with Accelerating Asia now, the kind of people walking through the door and saying, I want to start a business or I have started a startup, help me. So I, I think it comes down to um, probably two things. Uh, you need to be extremely passionate about solving problems and there's a number of ways that that matters. So number one, you have a problem that you're solving as a startup. You have some overarching problem and you're very passionate about solving that, right? And so that's that's kind of a baseline. Um, but you also need to be passionate about solving all the little problems along the way. So if you're getting like a license or if you're getting um, some sort of regulatory or you need to figure out some like currency problem and, you know, hiring and all these things. So a founder every day has like, you know, millions of problems to solve. Um, are you passionate about solving all of them? Um, so I think that's, that's huge. Um, and then the other thing is like, you need, you need to be the type of person that wants to be incredibly useful because you need to have empathy for your customers in mm. the biggest way in order to solve the problems that they have in order to provide value and have them pay you money. And so you need to have just some sort of like insecurity around being useful. If you have any sorts, any, any sense of entitlement or anything that's like, I deserve this, you're dead. Uh, my mom, she tells me, you can be an interior designer, You're like, get a diploma, go Philippines, be an interior designer, right. you, know? you can be successful there, you can be a lawyer, your English is good and all that, but to me, I really feel like entrepreneurship is a calling where 
I'm put in this environment where I have to improvise, adapt all the mm. time, and mm. it's something to do with my passion. I just love it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's it like on a day-to-day basis for you? So when you wake up in the morning, um, what are you doing? Do, is it like a uh, you know? Every day I'm going to go out and change the world. No, no. Is that how you yeah. think? Because no. I think that's somehow what people think an entrepreneur does, yeah. right? Um, the first thing I do is uh, I take a shower. <laughs> okay. Right. All right, we don't yeah. need to go through your personal hygiene but, habits. But, but <laughs> my mindset is that I have to get work done. Yeah. I have to, um, whatever feedback I receive from my mentors, I have to get it done. And I have to validate myself. And I have to meet up several people and ensure that everything goes smoothly and that people believe in me. I think it also goes to the, the culture. People here are a lot more afraid of making mistakes. Yep. So they don't they don't make mistakes and iterate and continue. And that's, I mean, that's a lot of what the early stage investing is about as well. You have to be able to get a read, get a feel on the entrepreneurs. And the only way to do that is to get your hands dirty and, and, and to make some mistakes, right? And get burnt. Yeah. Mm, you know, blow up, have a few, have a, have a few of the investment really go a very, very bad way. It just completely yeah. blew up the company. Have you had a blow up? up? Two of them. And what did that teach you? It taught me a lot of things. But they're so passionate about their dream that they are really solving a problem is something that they really want to do. And all these little role models around us would serve a, a big encouragement to, to the general public, the students as a whole. Yeah. I have another student startup that I'm going to share with you. She was an F9 student in a secondary school. A what, sorry? F9. What's that mean? I'm F9 not... means uh, the worst student in Max. It's, okay. like, it's like the worst failure. Failure nine is like the worst reg. All right, the worst and, of the worst. Yeah, it's the worst and the worst. And, yeah. and, and everybody feels that she's condemned. Uh, but she found a good teacher in the secondary school days that believed in her, yeah. encouraged her. And we, within that year, she, she changed from F9 to A1, the Mr. Highest. Wow. And then she joined Nian Poly as one of the students. After that, she went to NTU. Uh, in Nian, she do business study. NTU, she actually do product design. You could see that they, they can move. And, and she decided to uh, design a product in Dimensional for the elderly and the neat ones because you see a gap that happened in the family. And after that, she actually recently got a full paid scholarship from Imperial to do a PhD in the same topic to continue in the business and the dream that she has. Yeah, fantastic. So, so actually, I realised that everybody actually has a role to play. You, you never know that the encouragement to that person can mean so much for him or her after that. So, you, you know, sometimes I feel that as an investor, you, you, you can also be a little encouraged. Persistence, without sort of throwing them onto the street and say, "Right, learn it's, to sell." I don't think you can teach it. You can. Um, you need to give. You need to make someone you know look up to you and say, "I want to do that. I want right. to be like that." It's hard to teach uh, persistence through story, maybe. Right. You need to you know continue to say, "Okay, it's okay." Yeah. But like you said, um, this uncertainty. To be in a startup, it's an uncertain environment every day, every hour, every minute. So if you if you can deal with it, that's that's a place for you. If you yeah. can't deal with that, then you, it will be hard for you also to be persistent. I hope you enjoyed that section and some of the short clips of stories told by entrepreneurs and their motivations. A couple of bonus sections coming up for you now. One, a little insight into some of the places we've been and the ecosystems that we've learned about. A big part of what we do is travel. So traveling into the startup ecosystem, journeying into the depths of the stories of startup founders and understanding their adventures and their backstories 
So coming up a little bit of the places and the thoughts about those places. And then after that, lastly, a very short section about the motivations, which hopefully you'll find a little bit humorous. Joined by Emma from Koika. Yeah, from Koika, from South Korea. South Korea, which yeah. part? Uh, from Seoul, the capital. Yeah, let's do a shout out in Hangul in Korean to your friends. Just put it out there oh. so they know that you're the real deal. You oh, are. Okay, all right. Say hello to everybody. Ah, 네 여러분 안녕하세요. 한국의 코이카에서 에셀런 트레이닝 2019 참여하기 위해서 왔습니다. 잘 부탁드립니다. That sounds legitimate. <laughs> So when you mean similar kind of people, startups, scale-ups, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some people say it's a cool people and that it's like a limited circle of it. But I think we have so much potential in Thailand because, like, I mean, startup is of course a buzzword here, yeah. and and people is looking at other Southeast Asian countries. There is always a flock mentality when it comes to investments, right? Mm. Um, there was such a mentality in Myanmar like four years ago with the property market and. Prices per square meter were higher than in Singapore, so I like the quote. I'm I'm not sure if Warren Buffett said it or something. Where you know, when everyone is greedy, you should be fearful. Yeah. And when everyone is fearful, that's when you should be greedy. Greedy, yeah. It's yeah. Warren Buffett. So yeah. I think that that was one of the things that really drove me to explore more about the culture in Myanmar. And I know that from being in media, that the headlines are always easy to read. Like mm. everybody likes headlines, like um, punchlines and everything. But if you dive deeper and look at what does the country really have to offer usually in a place where there is a lack of demand the cost is lower it's just mm. simple economics do you have younger people like reach out to you mm-hmm. and say hey master like japanese i mean even be english speaking or uh-huh. other countries and say hey i love what you're doing i need help because i'm surrounded by people who want to become salaryman or oh, yeah. so oh, yeah. does that work does that happen to you yeah all the time all really? the time yeah so um uh when i go to these events in japan a lot of young people who are interested in joining a startup or starting their own startup they come to me and ask me what they can do you know because um uh people around them like in university or like schools uh are completely different uh, they, they they all want to go um get into a big company a big corporate company in japan so they are kind of like you know, unique in a way that they want to explore and do other things. And yeah, um, I hope I'm a good example yeah. to them. Yeah. Do you feel a sense of responsibility now that you've uh, put yourself out there and these people yeah. are looking to you? Um, I used to, but nowadays there's a lot more people doing startups in Japan yeah. that, yeah, um, anyone can provide help. Yeah, it's yeah. great. And I find mm. a lot of it is storytelling, isn't it? That yeah. people look, the, the reason people are going into big companies mm-hmm. still is because mm-hmm. they don't have alternative stories of success that's true. right that's true yeah i mean if you look at the japanese startup ecosystem now we're starting to see success yeah. stories coming through mm-hmm. previously you would have to look to people like i mean obviously you've got big investors like masayoshi sung yeah. who mm-hmm. who sort of interestingly again it's that korean mm-hmm. japanese influence you know yeah. his immigrant family mm-hmm. even mixi yeah. indonesian right yeah. japanese yeah. So, yeah. so it's those sort of foreigners that came in yeah. on the outside mm-hmm. change mm-hmm. stuff ah uh, that's true that's true and then yeah. then there's this generation of half and half which is japanese educated abroad i see yeah and yeah. i think the next generation is the the japanese educated in japan mm-hmm. so this mm-hmm. is sort of spreading that's true that's true the infection of yeah. the the, yeah. the entrepreneurship bug yeah it really is i mean like um 
Masayoshi-san has a big influence on the Japanese startup industry, but he doesn't really invest in Japanese um, startups. So uh, I think the ecosystem is evolving by itself. And um, you know, the recent success of uh, companies like um, Merukari, yeah. um, they, uh, people who work for Merukari are doing startups after that. And yeah, the ecosystem is definitely growing, and I see a lot of uh, talented entrepreneurs starting their own businesses in Japan, and hopefully they can, you know, come to Singapore or you know, yeah. explore more opportunities in outside of Japan. Well, what is it like living your life? What would describe to me this week, for example? So we're on Thursday. Where have you been? Was it sort of a, a, a really, you know, like relaxed? One destination week, or how did it work for you? Tell us a little bit no, about your yeah, so Look, our, our team, first of all, our team is located all over the place. Yeah. So, so uh, ADB is based in Manila, and we do have team members there. But look, we've got a team member in Singapore. We've got a team member in Bangkok. I'm based in Hanoi. We've got a team member in Dubai. Uh, so we're geographically distributed. I flew in from Hanoi earlier this week. I'll be flying out to Bangkok next. In fact, I don't get back to, to home, which is Hanoi, until June 1st. Wow. Uh, it's exhausting. But look, I mean, that's, that's the excitement of this, of this project. Yeah. You know, we're, our geographic coverage is from Armenia to Fiji, right? I mean, really, uh, we span half the globe. And, uh, and the potential, and the reason why I think that as a, as a generator of sustainable development impact we're, we're worth following, is if we find a, a solution that works in Indonesia, we have the capacity, we have the team, we have the toolkit to scale that solution to Pakistan, to Kazakhstan, mm. to, to Fiji. I think, uh as the Chinese middle class has grown, their disposable income has widened and they can spend a lot more than they could probably, uh, they, they probably used to. Um, they are traveling in larger numbers now, they're able to spend a lot more and as they have traveled, uh, businesses in, in Thailand, for, for, for example, have localized to needs of these, these travelers. Um, I'll make it very simple first, uh, restaurants have started adopting menus in Chinese. Uh, they have uh, whoever possibly can um, be multilingual. A lot of uh, Thai kids actually do go to, uh, you know, they speak three languages, Thai, English and Chinese as the third language. So a lot of these uh, people contribute to the local economies in this way. Um, if you take it a notch up, uh, when you mention startups and technology and Alipay, uh, I think all the technology has also uh, been absorbed into this localization of the local markets. So as Chinese came here, they came with WeChat, WeChat came integrated with Alipay, and the Chinese would show up onto stores and say, hey, can we pay using Alipay? And uh, one fine day that started happening. And when that happened, uh, the entire uh, ecosystem uh, from a tech point of view, driving cashless sales and uh, making everything electronic, I think it, it works for everyone. It works for uh, consumers, it works for businesses, it works for the government promoting uh, a tech-driven society. And I think uh, it is beautiful to see Rachada, uh, the night market here, embracing all of that and giving you a write-out demonstration of uh, how cultures and food and technology have merged into a sweet little place. And uh, this place is constantly selling. <laughs> 
no shortage of people buying here. Yeah. In this last section, saved for last, the passions of the startup entrepreneur. Just two clips with two startup entrepreneurs sharing their passions about what they do. And it's not just about work, it's about the backstory that creates the whole story of that person. So I'm talking to Mohan Balani from E27 and Bob Chua from Blink, and we talk about diving and Ironman triathlon. Um, I couldn't do it now because like, I've forgotten it all, but they took us down, and I remember they took the reading. We were down like 43, yep. 44 meters, yep. which we yep. shouldn't be doing. Right? Right. That's a bit though, yeah. We saw like hammerhead sharks come yeah. up. They swam a school of six hammerhead sharks that wow. like, just went, I was like, somebody was pointing out, goes, yeah. look, nudie brank, yeah. like that. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's yeah. really interesting. <laughs> I could see somebody waving, like, look, 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 there's a yeah. fucking hammerhead shark yeah. here. And I thought, man, that was just the moment. I thought, this, like, this is it. This is living, man. Like, there's like a, a pod of them, about four, five, or six. Just, they looked at us, you know, just eyed us like that, and just like swam by, like, you know, they knew what was going on. Apparently, I, I, so I'm a fairly new diver. So I have friends who have done like hundreds of dives. Yeah. And in Separan, apparently, right, they're so used to humans around that they can come up close, they don't feel afraid, and they're very comfortable being uh, uh, like interacting with humans. Right. So that's something I haven't experienced yet. Because most of my dives have been in the Philippines. Yeah. And it's mostly smaller stuff or wrecks. Oh, so my I've never done a wreck. Uh, my crazy dive was in Subic, where they're literally discovering still like new wrecks. Wow. When I was there, they discovered a new... Uh, I think it was a howitzer gun or an underwater artillery gun. And uh, it was never been on social media, never been filmed before. It right. was like 42 meters. So, like, wow. like Subic was mind-blowing if you're interested in wrecks. Yeah. Uh, did you go into a wreck or...? Uh, we did some, uh, some of the penetration stuff. Yeah. And then uh, I kind of realized after that that like, I, I don't think I want to continue doing uh, penetrations into wrecks because yeah. they, they are ridiculously dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, wrecks are way more dangerous than caves. Really, I thought yeah. caves would have been. That's what I thought so too. But maybe because of like it's the structure. Yeah, but caves are stable. Yeah. Right. Wrecks are theoretically they 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 are forever moving. They you don't really know if a piece might drop off. Right. Yeah. And typically wrecks are also a lot dirtier. Yeah. So the silt is uh, the higher chance of a silting out the place. Right. Right. Needed sort of like. 12 months where I didn't have anything. And yeah. I think it's like, you know, you, I talk to people, there's like three things. You've got family, Iron Man, business. Choose two. Absolutely. So that something has to give. So how is it for you? Because you were going to do Vietnam, right? Um, yeah, I've signed up for now Challenge Vietnam, which is July 12th. So I've still got some you haven't given up. <laughs> no, I haven't given up. I would never give up. Whether I'll do it is another thing. Signing up and doing it is two different things. <laughs> well as you are on record now, Bob. <laughs> um, but, you know, on the last Iron Man I did, there was a placard somebody held up. And I, I, quite, I laughed when I saw it. It said, if you're still married, you're not training hard enough. <laughs> right, so. oh, that is a dangerous statement to wish for, right? So, um, you know, I think that sort of uh, resonated in me that, you know, I'm still married, I've still got kids that recognize me, so I'm definitely not training hard enough. And Spinning plates. Yeah, exactly. Right? Um, but it's a huge commitment, right, yeah, to, yeah. to balance uh, that sort of thing. Are you, you know? going to go back in July? I mean, that's only around the corner, right? It's around the corner. A challenge? I, I, is it a half challenge or a full? It's 70.3. Right. So, but still, you need to be yeah, yeah. You can't just fit. You start can't, training two weeks no, before. you can't can you? do that. And, you know, I think we, we've got a million things for Blink yeah. that we're launching and, and investors and stuff. So, look, it's there. 
<laughs> you know, I'll I'll think about it. I've still got time. I've still got two. My energy, optimism. Are you starting? Started training. So thank you for joining me on this journey through our world of podcasting. And hopefully we captured really what podcasting is about, the human stories, the patchwork of sounds and stories that make up ecosystems, businesses, industries, and individual lives. You know, often these stories can be inspiring. Sometimes they're beautiful, but always they need to be authentic. And that is what podcasting is all about. I've been doing this for several years now. I'm learning the craft. It's less about PR, but it's more about the authentic human story. So thank you for joining us, me, into this journey into sound and how we're able to tell those stories in different formats for our own podcast, Asia Tech Podcast and The Podcast Show, as well as the Pitch Media Asia clients, the work that we do for them. Thank you very much for listening in. And now it's time for you to find your voice. Mm -hmm.